And this from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed. They kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of life. I read recently that there are so many different armed groups in the conflict in Syria that you can't keep track of all of them. In such a situation, who is the legitimate authority? In Yemen recently, there was a coup by a military group. Does having military might qualify a group to govern, to be the legitimate authority? There's a debate going on in our country around marriage equality. States and federal courts have weighed in. Now the Supreme Court has decided that they're going to rule on this and determine where the appropriate authority will reside on this issue. There's been a debate going on for some time about climate change. Who do you believe? To whom do you assign authority? In fact, in our own United Methodist Church as a denomination, there's any number of things being debated right now, but as a part of all of them, one of the questions that always comes up is who has final authority? The issue of authority is still a current issue. The issue of who has authority or what is legitimate authority or who we will pay attention to is still an issue today. Mark raises that issue in this story he tells us in this first chapter of his gospel, very near the beginning of Jesus beginning his ministry. In verse 21 and 22 we began, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. Do you give Jesus authority in your life? When you're making decisions about your life, do you consult Jesus as an authority? Do you let the teachings of the gospel guide and direct you and be the authority for you in terms of how you live? Truth be told, there's so much in the Bible, none of us can remember all of it. So what most of us do is pick and choose the pieces we like to follow, and we give those authority. But there's so many different challenging teachings it's a task for all of us as serious disciples to determine how we're going to use Scripture 
and how God might be speaking to us through the Bible and through the teachings of Christ and how those might be an authority for us even in our day. In this particular story, there's three different actors or characters or groups. Of course, there's Jesus who's doing the teaching and then the scribes who are listening and then there's this man with the unclean spirit. And you would think that typically the scribes, since they're the ones who had responsibility for interpreting Jewish law, particularly in the synagogue, that they would be the ones to determine who was the authority here. But that's not how Mark tells it. He says it's this madman, if you will, this one with an unclean spirit that is the first one to recognize who Jesus is. Did you notice that in verse 24? He's the one who says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But even then, he is still suspicious. In the first part of verse 24, he says these words, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Have you ever thought Jesus may have come to destroy you? Or your way of life? Or if not Jesus himself, maybe the church or the preacher trying to destroy you? I've had a few who have written me who suggested I have done that in their lives. I had to respectfully disagree. But you understand, sometimes we have these experiences with Jesus or with the church that challenge us. And sometimes it feels like Perhaps they're trying to destroy us. When I was pastoring in another city, a group of my people began to mention to me a name of a particular woman. They said, now she's a member of another church. It's a respectable mainline church. And she met her husband, in fact, in that church and got married in that church. And we really thought she was a pillar in that church. But she's become very unhappy in that church. We want you to meet her because she's looking for a new church home. So we were in a social situation, and sure enough, some of my members brought her up and introduced me to her. We were just having casual conversation, and then as parties go, a few people drifted away, and just the two of us were standing there for a moment. As soon as everybody else was gone, she said, let me tell you something about my church. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> she said, I'll tell you what happens at my church. My preacher talks about money every Sunday. He's all the time telling us we're supposed to give. He even says we're supposed to tithe. She said, I work too hard for my money to be giving that much money to him. I think all these churches are just about money these days. Is that what you think? <laughs> I was surprised. I hesitated and stammered. I don't think I gave her a very good answer. I said, oh, I don't think so. I said, I don't think your pastor's trying to rob you or anything. She said, oh, you don't know him, <laughs> which was true. I said, well, you know, the, the teachings of the church are, are supposed to be a blessing. We're trying to free you from consumerism. It's a part of your relationship with God and going deeper. And she said, at your church, do you talk about money every Sunday? I hesitated again. I said, well, 
Yes, I do. But I'm trying to tell people about where the money goes and how much good we do and how we're furthering the cause of Christ. About then, other people started to walk up, and she leaned in a little closer, and she said, well, let me tell you, I've had to fend for myself for most of my life, and the church just does not understand. And then other people were there, and the conversation was over. And I felt like I had failed her. I don't think she walked away from that conversation feeling like giving was a blessing, that it was part and parcel of her relationship with God, that in fact she was a trustee. I think she walked away still upset, feeling like someone was trying to rob her or hurt her. I think she felt that we were out to destroy her. Nobody likes authority if they think it is going to destroy them. How about you? Have you ever felt that way about the church or about the teachings of Jesus? He says some pretty challenging things in the Gospels about how we use our money. But not just that, how we use our time, how we respect God, how we treat our enemies, how we deal with people of different races, or how we deal with people within the body of Christ that have differing opinions. Jesus says some pretty challenging things. And sometimes change and transformation feel like they're trying to destroy us. The issue we have today is, will we listen? Will we give Jesus' teaching authority in our lives? The scribes down here in verse 27, Mark tells us, are amazed. And they keep asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Mine says, a new teaching dash with authority, exclamation point. Now, the interesting thing here to me is that Mark gives us no details on the content of the teaching. They ask about a new teaching, but Mark doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus says. He doesn't mention the content at all, so I don't think the problem is the new teaching. I think it's that he's teaching with authority. The problem is Jesus speaking as one with authority. And not just authority within the religious realm as they were in the synagogue and he's speaking with authority in the synagogue or to the religious folk but he also speaks to this man with an unclean spirit being unclean would mean he's ritually unclean or unobservant as a jewish person that he's not following the appropriate jewish laws of life and so mark i think is saying that jesus has authority inside the religious sphere but in this story, at least, also beyond that as well. But notice the sequence as this unfolds in Mark. When the man with the unclean spirit recognizes Jesus and says, You are the Holy One of God, then and only then does Jesus command him. He recognizes him as holy, and then Jesus commands him and the man and the unclean spirit, if you will, obey. Recognition then 
obedience. The sequence is important here. Recognizing Jesus for whom he is and then obeying him. How you recognize Jesus makes a difference in terms of whether or not you're ready to obey. Jacob Wright sitting up here on the chancel with me this morning. I've asked him to come and share a little bit about his experience. He came to Boston Avenue the same summer I did. One morning early, he came into the building. He didn't know anyone here. He met Bill Kroll in the hallway and got a cup of coffee. A few minutes later, I had the chance to meet him. Before we left that day, he had a chance to meet Joel, and he heard about the choir. He knew about the orchestra before he ever left. Turns out, Jacob's a music major in college, so he was a great fit for us. It was clear before he ever left that first morning that this was a great place for him. But he had been a part of Methodism before, uh, in another part of our country. Jacob, come and tell us a little bit about your early experience with Methodism. Well, I, I grew up in another church of another denomination, and I accepted what it was because that's where I grew up. But as I, as I did grow older, I started to realize that I was just going through the motions, and I started to feel drained, and not necessarily physically, but a little deeper than that. And I, I wanted something more. So I started to explore some other churches. My mom and I went to some different places, um, but I really liked the Methodist Church, and one key thing for me was, was that the Methodist Church focused on service. Um, and I found a quote from Mother Teresa that says, love in action is service. And so if we don't act upon what we hear on a Sunday morning, we can become stagnant. And, um, and instead of drained after service, I felt like I was energized in a very refreshing way. And so when I put these together, I was energized to serve. All right. So that happened in a Methodist church for you, what, in Ohio? Right. But then um, you heard about Teach for America, and you kind of put that together with your uh, ideal for serving, and you responded to that, and you ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right. And that's how you found us. But you were also teaching that first summer and kind of had some tough experiences in the classroom. Tell us about that. Right. Well, yeah, I lived in Ohio, and in the fall of my senior year, I got accepted into Teach for America, which is a program where they use qualified graduates to teach in low-income communities for two years, and the goal is to close the opportunity gap. And the opportunity gap usually lies between an urban city and its suburban counterparts, in which Tulsa is no exception. Mm -hmm. um, and it seeks to do this by uh, empowering students to get an education so that they can go on and have a brighter future and hopefully come back and lift their communities out of um, that situation where it's in, where there's generational poverty. and um, so before I came out here, I was told that I'd be teaching math, but I'm a music major, so <laughs> teaching math was a little uh, daunting to me. Um, so I, I consulted a lot of my you know, mentors and families and friends to try to get an idea on, on should I do this or not. It seemed like a big step to move 800 miles across the country. Um, but one of my uh, mentors, my cooperating teacher when I was student teaching, told me that um, there's nothing more selfless than to give up two years of your life to serve others. And there's that word service again, and that really made an impact on me. So I knew I had to do it. Um, so I came out here in 2013, and uh, I realized that teaching was tough, and tougher than I had expected based on what I read in a piece of paper. <laughs> um, <laughs> Indeed. So just getting through each day was really an accomplishment. Um, but what really helped was coming to Boston Avenue on Sunday morning or going to choir rehearsal on Wednesday evenings. It, it really rejuvenated me and helped me... Um, 
and energize me to, to continue my service to others. And on a daily basis, my prayer life also helped me. Um, that sustained me and reassured me that my discernment was um, correct and faithful and obedient. Excellent, excellent. Well, then since you've been here at Boston Avenue, you've gotten involved in a lot of different areas of ministry, and you've also joined a small group, and that's helped you some in terms of your prayer life and such. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right, about a year ago, um, I heard about some of the small groups that were coming out, and I got a personal invitation to try Companions in Christ, uh, which was led by Melanie Linsky. It had about six or seven people, and it has um, some different books, but I did book one, which focused on your spiritual life as a journey, and we liked it so much, we went on to book two, which focused on digging into Scripture and, and how can we understand this better in today's world. Um, and Scripture for me is difficult, so it really helped. And then uh, eventually we did also book three, which focused on prayer, and that was very powerful to me. Um, a lot of times I hear prayers like in church or after choir or in small group, and it's so eloquent, and I just wish I could pray that well. <laughs> um, but what it really showed me that uh, prayer is a very individualistic thing, and everybody does it differently, and that's okay. You have to do the way that you feel most connected to God. Um, and it really showed me that there's um, some different ways to approach prayer. Um, for example, I, I started praying in the mornings, which kind of changed my life, cause, because instead of hearing a TV or talking to people at work or um, other people, I was first connecting with God in the morning to start my day, which is very important to me. Um, I also try to have more silence in prayer. Uh, that allows me to open my ears a little bit more to what God is trying to tell me. Uh, and I, I also try to think of thanksgiving more. I ask so much in prayer, it seems like, and, and I don't realize that I need to thank God more for the things I am given and have more gratitude. Um, but the, the book required us to have silence, book three required us to have silence at the beginning of each daily exercise. And at first it was just five minutes, and then we went to week two, and it was ten minutes, and then they really asked for more. So, um, <laughs> But after a while, 